This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comics show. I am one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as he is always, Dan Gunther. How's it going, Dan? Hey, Matthew. Uh, Pretty good. Good to be back after a little bit of a break there. So uh, ready to talk about Star Trek books and comics. I am too, and you know what's great is we actually have some fantastic news this week Mm -hmm. to cover, and the first one was that DS9 Force in Motion had a cover release, and so we're going to look at that cover a little bit and judge it, and then I think you're going to let everybody know what the blurb is, the official blurb for the book, but uh, cover first. Mm -hmm, What do you think of this one? Well, it's definitely different. Um, It's one of those ones that I kind of had to take a second look at because your first impression is like what is going on here so we've got this robert hook research station uh not deep space nine on the cover and you know a couple of space suited starfleet officers and uh a speedboat type shuttlecraft there uh really interesting really dynamic design um i love the colors and it's it definitely has me interested uh you know, sufficiently exciting for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm like you in that I did need to look at this a couple of times just to kind of get what it was. And there's this amazing station there, um, this research station. And like you said, I'm, I'm I'm thinking these two Starfleet characters are probably Nog and O'Brien somehow. And then of course the Mm -hmm. Voyager, style shuttlecraft floating there in space and this strange anomaly happening around this station too i i think this is more than sufficiently exciting i I think this is super exciting Mm -hmm. uh just with what's going on here it really it just grabs you you know like this is not as wonderful as it is to see like the original enterprise on a book or something <laughs> like that you know this is really something that you're like oh whoa what's that what's going on there you know you want to pick this book up yeah. that and it has the deep space nine logo on the top that's awesome that's always yeah <laughs> definitely you know i'm kind of noticing that with the the next few books we have coming up with the with the cover design choices you know the uh, elusive salvation is a very non-traditional looking cover and uh you know, this month's new release, uh, the new Enterprise novel, again, really 
dynamic, really specific, not just kind of a generic picture of Archer or the Enterprise or something like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of really liking the direction these are going in. I think you're right on there, and and you've you've picked up on something that I hadn't even thought about until you mentioned that you know live by the code. You're right, has that really dynamic uh, ship shot with the Andorian ships and everything on that cover. So maybe they've just I don't know. Maybe they just realized from our segment that judging a book by its cover really does happen. And <laughs> you know when you have a a, a sufficiently exciting cover. It kind of does make somebody in a bookstore want to pick it up and be like, "Oh, what the heck is going on there? I gotta, I gotta at least look at the blurb on the back." So, uh, <laughs> Dan, why don't you let everybody know what uh, that blurb is for this book? Definitely. In twenty three sixty seven, Captain Benjamin Maxwell of the Starship Phoenix ordered the destruction of a Cardassian warship and a supply vessel, killing more than six hundred crew members. Maxwell believed that the Cardassians were arming for a new attack on the Federation. And though history eventually proved he was probably correct, the Federation had no choice but to court-martial and incarcerate him. Almost twenty years have passed, and now Maxwell is a free man, working as a maintenance engineer on the private science station Robert Hooke, home to crackpots, fringe researchers, and, possibly, something much darker and deadlier. Maxwell's former crewmate, Chief Miles O'Brien, and O'Brien's colleague, Lieutenant Commander Nog, have come to the Robert Hooke for a visit. Unfortunately, history has proven that whenever O'Brien and Nog leave Deep Space Nine together, unpredictable forces are set into motion. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, I, yeah. Definitely some really cool uh, elements coming together there. No kidding. Um, and, and just that reference to, you know, Impoch Noor kind of gives you the feeling what <laughs> may or may not kind of happen here. Uh, some serious intrigue. So I'm... I'm really excited about this book. I can't wait. And I love Jeffrey Lang. Uh, one, he's so much fun when we're talking to him on the show. But mm -hmm. two, I've loved his books. You know, so I'm really excited to see him write, uh, you know, a non-data specific story here. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of Nog and O'Brien being on an adventure together is really exciting as well. So can't wait. Definitely agree with you on that one for sure. Well, we've also got a couple comic stories to talk about this week. Uh, this week saw the release of Starfleet Academy number four and ongoing number 55. Uh, so why don't we start with the Starfleet Academy story this month? Uh, what did you think of this one, Matthew? Wow, Dan, uh, you had to start with me and uh, <laughs> I'm going to be the bearer of bad news to our listeners. I, I feel like for, for at least my perspective, uh, this, this comic is boring. Um, I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it for anyone, uh, anymore, but so far, this comic has done absolutely nothing. It is a really boring story. Um, nothing's happening in it. Nothing's exciting until the very, very end of this comic, where it kind of gets exciting, but we already knew that was coming. <laughs> you know, we, it, it, there's... I I need you to tell the story that, that, that I'm not ahead of you the whole way. I'm not ahead of all the characters the whole way. I need this story to really have some resonance um, the only thing that's semi-interesting here is the way in which uh, Spock and Uhura kind of get back into a get, uh, relationship again. Um, and, 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 you know, they, they've been dating and they stopped dating in, in this, this series and now they're dating again. Uh, that was semi-interesting to see how that played out and why it played out. Um, other than that, they, I think, have really wasted an opportunity and 
I think it really comes down to what we talked about last time is that this story has just been bungled in the storytelling of it. Um, uh, it, it needed a, a different connection, something. I don't know. It, it's just, yeah, I, I would say listen to the last episode we did where we talked about issue three and Dan and I, I think, came up with a really great way to retell this story uh, where it made much more sense. It was more exciting, and and it made both parts of the storyline feel important. Um, but I still don't have a reason to care about the cadets. They're just a plot point more than they are real characters. So for me, it, it's a complete wash. I, I would say I wouldn't be reading this story until maybe you found it at a Barnes & Noble you know, when you watch reading the trade paperback, I just, I really do. I kind of think it's awful. And I feel bad about saying that, but I just have to be honest. Uh, so mm. how about you though? I, I'm interested to see where you are. If, if this, uh, if, you know, cause we had a pretty hard discussion on it last time. I'm wondering if this helped you or made it worse. Well, I feel like maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of analyzing what I think of this story because um, this one, I, I have to say, actually kind of grabbed me back a little bit. Uh, I was really, last issue, not enjoying it. And this one, and now I'm kind of wondering if it's because I've set my expectations lower <laughs> because of the earlier stories. <laughs> that's awful. <laughs> I know. And, and like, I'm kind of sitting here going, oh, I hope that's that's not the case. But I actually really enjoyed uh, the story set in the present time with the cadets this time. I I felt like they kind of had this cool coming together as a team, a little bit of silliness with some argumentative stuff in there, but I kind of really enjoyed the, uh, they're kind of trying to get ahead in this race. I kind of got into that story a bit, you know, it's a little bit schlocky, but again, I'm wondering if maybe I just kind of set my expectations lower and went with it. Um, but, and also I do have to say, I really enjoyed the end and the end really did hook me there. I think that was, I, I actually, hate to say it, maybe I was blind, but I, I didn't see the time travel thing coming. I probably should have, but uh, I mean, I saw it coming a couple pages before it happened, but I was still kind of like, oh, they're going this way in the story. Okay, I, I didn't see that coming before I started this issue kind of thing. Uh, so I, I think this one's a, an improvement over the previous stories. Uh, I definitely see your um, arguments against it, and I can definitely appreciate that perspective. Uh, I do have to say this one brought it back a little bit for me, though. Yeah, you know, and I I love that we don't agree there. You know, I think it, it's it's great, you know, and uh, that means I think it, in some ways the listeners may be more apt to be like, okay, Matt and Dan don't agree here. Maybe <laughs> I need to read this issue and to figure it out myself. So, and that's great. I mean, that's that's definitely uh, what the, the show is for. You know, we, we want to give our honest opinions about things and... Uh, you know, whether we think it can be better at the same time, uh, we love to hear your thoughts. So yeah, hit us up on the Babel conference and let us know if you're agreeing or not. Um, uh, for me, I, I have to say, uh, going into ongoing 55, this is going to be a part one of four, the legacy of Spock. And this is a complete 180 from what happens, uh, and is happening for me in the Starfleet Academy. This is primary material here. I mean, this is, really important stuff. Uh, they are finally telling us the story of basically what happened to Prime Spock between Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness and that mm -hmm. storyline. What happened to him? Uh, and to me, 
I don't want to give anything away here. I, I feel like all of this needs to just be read by the listeners, but this is the way you tell a story, and this is a fantastic start, and maybe it's just because it's about Prime Spock, um, but I don't really think that's it. I think they've crafted something that's really thought-provoking about what his existence would be like, especially in reference to the rest of what's left of the Vulcans. So, uh, Dan, I'm really interested to see what you thought of it, whether you liked it as much as I did or if, uh, you know, maybe you didn't. <laughs> well, on this one, there's going to be no disagreement between the two of us. I absolutely <laughs> love this story. <laughs> um it, on so many levels, this story is really great uh, artwork wise, like the likenesses mm, of yes. Nimoy Spock. And uh, did you uh, notice that that the Vulcan woman, the uh, the like and I don't know what she I don't even know if they label who she is, but she's the main speaker at the conference they're having. She looks just like Dame Judy Dench. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was I was reading that. I was like, oh, it's M. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As a Vulcan, that's fantastic. Oh, it was great. And and the coolest part was like they get that likeness so good that I was totally hearing her voice. And yes, yes. Would she not just make the best Vulcan elder? Like I, oh. I want to see it. I really yeah. do. I I think that if they could have gotten her somehow for like a Vulcan ambassador to earth or member of the federation council or something for star trek beyond oh god mm -hmm. how awesome would that be oh it'd be incredible <laughs> yeah no I, I i really love this comic um the the and again like you i don't want to give anything away but the kind of plot twist at the end i have to admit i didn't see that coming uh actually both of the big plot twists at the end i should say uh so yeah definitely pick this one up uh, because I think, you know, if parts two through four are, you know, half as good as this first part, it's it's going to be a pretty great series. And I hope so. I mean, I, I think, you know, and I'm sure any storyteller will tell you this, uh, creating a good beginning is, is easier than crafting a good ending to the story. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's one thing that we have both kind of complained about recently with the comics. They set up a good idea, but the ending isn't quite as strong. They don't stick the landing the way we want them to. Yeah. So this one, though, I feel like they've set themselves up for such a good story. I can't I don't see them bungling the ending here. So I'm really, really excited to get to the end of this one. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh Really, really looking forward to see where this goes. And I, I think probably since the Q issues, I haven't felt that way of like really wanting to see what happens next here. So uh, definitely yeah. high on my list. Yeah, I, I, Eurydice, I didn't feel that way. And I think maybe the Orion one I was, I was, you know, was interested in for sure. I, and, and we enjoyed the first one so much. But this mm -hmm. one, I really am thinking to myself, okay, when's the next issue come out? I really want to know yeah. where they're going to go with this story. So uh, well done. Kudos to them uh, for, I think, uh, telling a great story that I feel like celebrates Leonard Nimoy and the character mm. Spock in such a fantastic way here in the J.J. universe. Well, Matthew, before we get into the feature, I just want to talk a little bit about where to find Literary Treks and all the other podcasts here on Trek FM. We have shows on the network covering all corners of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button and please give us a star rating and review. 
This really helps us rise in the search results on iTunes and, of course, makes it, makes it possible for more Star Trek book fans to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link there as well. If you want to get into contact with us, we have a form on our website at trek.fm contact. You can leave us a voicemail there as well. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com trekfm. We're also on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com trekfm. We also have the Babel Conference, our listeners-only group on Facebook. Uh, just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or you can go to our website at trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. For literary treks, of course, we have our Goodreads group. Uh, you can go there and find all the bookshelves that contain books we've read previously, as well as what's coming up on future shows, uh, so you can keep up to date and follow along with us here on the show. There are also always great conversations happening about all the books and comics on that group. Well, Dan, we have reached critical mass. We have reached the return, which <laughs> I think uh, was one of the biggest book releases uh, ever to hit Star Trek books. Uh, William Shatner had obviously written, and we have covered the Ashes of Eden. And then, as uh, and before Star Trek First Contact came out, Kurt gave us. William Shatner gave us his idea of what the next Star Trek adventure should be. And this one brought back a beloved captain as well as the Borg. And mm -hmm. we are going to really dig into this book. So if you haven't read it, I, I suggest that uh, you not listen to this podcast until you have because we're definitely going to spoil it rotten. Um, because right away I want to dig into the idea of bringing back Kirk. In fact, there was a whole website devoted to bringing back Kirk. <laughs> um, they had a video and everything about, we want Kirk back. And William Shatner actually pitched this idea to the studio, and they said no, and so he turned it into this book. Um, I want to ask you in the book, so the way that they actually bring Kirk back, what do you think of it? Um, and, and does it, for you, does it work well enough in the storyline, and I, I would say in-universe for Star Trek. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it's one of those things that uh, finding a way to do it, you know, we see his body on screen, we know how he died, and, uh, you know, it's a really difficult thing. So I think I'm probably being fair when I say it's probably the best they could have done with what they had to work with. Uh, it's a little bit out there. It's a little bit, you know, the idea of the Romulans and the Borg getting together and using their technology to reanimate Kirk. It stretches it a little bit. <laughs> you know, you, you have to admit. Um, but like I say, for what they had to work with, I think it's probably the best they could have done. Um, and, it, you know, it works. Like, they, they managed to take a very outlandish concept and, you know, well into this book, you're kind of become okay with it. You kind of, okay, I'm, you're, you, it's, it's fun enough that you're taken along for the ride and, you know, it's not that egregious, if that makes sense. 
No, I, I, I think it, it's an interesting thing, the idea that um, the Borg, that, that Kirk is brought back through a combination of Borg nanites and a temporal transporter mm. that is able to capture basically his essence, his soul, and those two things put together combine to create this this you know resurrection of of this legend and you know with all the things that we've seen in star trek um it really doesn't feel that off you know mm. um especially when you think about the idea that you can transport through universes from the mirror universe to here and back again you know if you can do that uh, the idea of maybe temporal transporting doesn't seem so in fact we actually know that exists in the future you know when um you're able to transport from you know the past to the future with the time ship from voyager you know mm. so those kind of things are possible it it just doesn't seem all that off so i felt like yeah. okay this is a, it's an interesting idea it, and it works you know and i think what works is that for most of the storyline too Kirk is a pawn in a bigger storyline. And mm -hmm. I think that makes it interesting as well because you know you bring Kirk back and he's not immediately back in action. No, he's this person who is kind of the shadow who's being used and doesn't even really know who he is because his mind has been altered. And mm -hmm. I think that makes for a pretty interesting story, if you ask me. Um, because if he had just come back and everything's like, oh, I'm still the most awesome person in the <laughs> galaxy. You know, it just doesn't quite work. Yeah. It's kind of funny that, you know, that aspect of the story really mirrors what we talked about in the last book, The Ashes of Eden, you know, where Kirk isn't kind of on the top of his game and is, you know, being used by the people around him as a pawn in a, in a kind of much larger plot. Uh, it's kind of interesting that we've seen that uh, concept played out twice now. Uh, in in different ways but you know kind of just with echoes of that same idea there at its core it's really interesting you know when, when you're talking about especially here in this book it, it makes a lot of sense to have Kirk not be the person who is in charge on his game like uh, because Kirk is out of time too you know all of that helps I, I it really helps sell the idea, you know, he's out of time, he's out of phase, he's he's out of it, you mm -hmm. know. And that's what happens when you bring somebody back from the dead. And the way he's brought back from the dead, I think, is very interesting, too, because the way they set it up here, he's not going to live for but more than a week. You know, mm -hmm. uh, with this this process, the nanites are keeping him alive, but they're also at the same time killing him. You know, I, th I think that's really interesting to see. So uh, the whole thing of bringing him back and why they bring him back, I thought was actually pretty interesting. Um, the actual why of it, the, the plan for bringing him back, it, how does that work for you too? Because that's an interesting <laughs> aspect to the storyline. Mm -hmm. That's actually something that, like, I I have a bigger problem with that than, like, the 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 technical how and that kind of thing. It seems a little thin. It seems a little bit, you know, maniacal crazed, uh, villain esque, if that makes sense. But 
you know, again, it's it's kind of the story needs that motivation. It needs that reason to do it. And, you know, I guess that kind of works. Um, you know, when I was saying earlier about how they brought him back, that's kind of more what I was thinking about myself was was the, you know, why did they do it? And, and for what reason was he brought back? Uh, I thought it was a little bit weak. But, you know, again, we've got to bring Kirk back. We've got to have him back in the story. I do have to say that tying it back to, you know, the the Balance of Terror uh, episode um, and having it kind of be a family vendetta, I thought that aspect of it was really interesting. And I thought, you know, that's a really cool uh, use of some of the lore of Star Trek, which is something in novels that I always really appreciate. Uh, but as, on the individual level, the motivation of this character just felt a little bit uh, to me, if that, you know. Yeah, and I guess that kind of transitions just a little bit into this idea of the maniacal Borg in this story. Because their plan here, and this is where I thought was kind of interesting, is the growth of the Borg was really fascinating. That um, mm. there's no queen here, but they have definitely evolved from where we've seen them last. And, and a lot like... Uh, first contact but in i i think you could argue as a fan it's a much more organic way than a lot of fans felt the the queen works i'm not mm-hmm. bashing the queen i i think that that works fine um uh, in in the story and i can make it work in my head canon too easily but here it actually just seems a little bit more natural that mm-hmm. the borg have adapted to the realities of trying to take over the Federation, that this is going to be their biggest challenge ever, and therefore it needs a different type of plan. So I love that part of their plan was using the Romulans. Part of that plan was using dissonant Romulans. Part of that plan was using this one Romulan who would be able to help them get the dissonance they need so that they could have the Romulan technology and... Her plan was she wants to punish Kirk as well Mm. as the Federation. Therefore, you know what I'm saying? Like all of those things are working together. And what it really came down to was me, the Borg, being scarier than ever. Like Mm. this plan of theirs uh, and, and the way that they're acting is so much more maniacal than anything we've ever seen them done. Usually it's just this kind of monolithic, uh, being you know in separate point parts you know it whereas this it just seems so much more i don't know evil and foreboding and scary like if the borg are starting to think like this we kind of are done for you know like it's Mm -hmm. that to me is is what made the story actually work is that they were just the borg were the ones behind i mean they were the puppet masters pulling all the strings in this and um you know, obviously to uh, Kirk having the knowledge that he did and Picard having the knowledge he did about the Borg, I thought was kind of interesting. But And, mm-hmm. and the reason they'd want both of them dead in the end. Uh, but yeah, just it was that that part was kind of fascinating to me. And I was like, OK, this makes it work more than I, I instead of wanting to tear it down. I, did, I feel like, OK, this is actually kind of smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that aspect of it, the the Borg side of it, I absolutely agree with. Um, and I, and I think it just makes sense, you know, with the Borg being as adaptive as they are, that they would, you know, adapt to that new reality and adapt to, uh, different tactics. You know, we see them using different, uh, technological 
adaptations. So yeah, why not different sociological and um, manip- manipulative means to get what they want? You know, it really makes sense for for the Borg to really take that idea and uh, adapt is just the best word it, and adapt to that reality for sure. I really appreciated that aspect. Well, especially since what good is all of that combined knowledge if you never actually use it? You know, Mm -hmm. the scientific sociological knowledge, if that completely gets lost. And that's where I think, again, it made the Borg even scarier because they were taking it to the next level in the idea of what would these beings actually be capable of? Uh, If you're all working in concert together and you all have this knowledge, you should be an insurmountable force. They you wouldn't know, assimilated a politician is what happened. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And I, well, that's what I thought was so interesting here. And, and, and this will get, and I, I kind of am going to jump to the very end, but what was so interesting here is that it became a very biblical thing at the very end of the story where the way to stop the Borg is to make a, uh, them scatter. That the same way in which in Scripture that... Um, God destroys the Tower of Babel and and mm-hmm. c- confuses the language of all humans, and that's where we get all our language from scripturally. That this kind of turns into the Borg Tower Babel, like that's the plan of of Kirk and Picard and the crew is that's how we beat them. We take away their ability to collaborate together, and. Mm. Which that has always make, been their biggest strength. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought that was also very fascinating um, and a really smart idea. Like if you can keep them from all being linked, you take away their superpower. You know, it's mm. like for kryptonite. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And like that really has been what makes the Borg so menacing is their ability to... Uh, communicate so quickly and adapt you know all of the all borg everywhere to whatever we throw against them kind of thing so yeah to really subvert that and flip it on its ear that's the ultimate weapon when it comes to the borg and and yeah it's a really cool it's a very elegant uh solution which you know makes a lot of sense given the nature of the borg well and you know, I it's funny because you say that elegant. I just don't think most people come into this book thinking you're going to get anything elegant. You're going to get <laughs> a lot of ham-fistedness, and we'll get to some of that, I promise. We, we're not going to discount some of the things in the book that mm, could be done better. But I think <laughs> that aspect was really fascinating. And then on top mm. of that, correct me if I'm wrong, is this the first time that somebody has alluded to the fact that V'ger was actually found by a remnant or a part of the Borg back in the day. I think it was, I I remember it kind of being a like fan theory or like something that had at least been floated. But uh, as far as anything official or anything uh, licensed fiction or anything like that, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the first time that idea, uh, you know, makes it to the pages of an actual story, as as far as I know. And I'm sure, you know, our listeners, if we're wrong about that, will probably uh, let us know. But I'm sure they will. <laughs> <laughs> but as as far as I know, yeah, I mean, I I remember, like I said, that being talked about, but uh, as as a fan theory, but nothing official that I can recall. Does that 
did that work for you? Did you feel like, oh, okay, now now this kind of makes it come full circle and it really kind of connects both, you know, generations. Like it really does a good job of bringing 23rd and 24th century together. And when you think about it now with Enterprise, makes it even more interesting with Enterprise and Regeneration. Um, even though if this had happened, Regeneration would have probably been very different or not happened at all. Anyway, just mm-hmm. that, all of that together, what did you end up thinking about the way that connection, does it work for you at all? Um, I, I feel it's one of those things that like, I feel like in the context of this particular story, it works and I like it. Um, as far as the wider Star Trek and the Borg, I've never really been a huge fan of B- V'ger and the Borg being connected that way. Um, you know, and, and for me that that's just basically a personal preference as far as, uh, not wanting everything in the universe to have this kind of connection and small universe syndrome. So, you know, I don't, I don't have any real <laughs> good reason for rejecting that other than yeah, it doesn't feel right to me, but in the context of this story, I think it really works. And, you know, as a longtime fan of Star Trek novels, I, uh, I definitely have no problem with separating various parts of Star Trek literature off into their own little kind of pockets, if that makes sense. So, you know, for this story in this universe and, and what they're telling here, it's, I like it, uh, wider Star Trek universe wise. And, and, you know, maybe it's uh, a bit of cognitive dissonance, but yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of that connection. Um, but it's, it's a neat idea. You know, I, I can go with it for this story. That's, that's interesting. Um, I, I think I'm definitely more of a fan of it than you are. I thought mm. specifically because it fits so well with what we, heard from spock about uh v'ger you know it was found by a race of of living machines and it was repaired and set back to to complete its mission and um i think that's that's really interesting and that that it was a precursor somehow of the borg and what i loved about this book too is that made the idea that, that the borg haven't always been the same like they have evolved, they have grown into what we kind of knew from the next generation that they hadn't always completely been like that. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really fascinating. And then, of course, um, you know, they don't take it a step further that V'ger is what creates the Borg uh, with mm-hmm. the, the combination of Decker and Ilea and the machine all in one. So I, I really, I, I just, to me, it works. I, I think... It was a fun and great connection, and again, it's it's not like overdone here. They like mm-hmm. they just use it as a way to help with the Spock part of the story, which I thought was really interesting. Which I did think I thought that was really cool. Yeah, right. And it's a cool connection to say, oh, and remember in the motion picture that V'ger had been found by a race of machines. Well, it was found by the race of machines that you know you just didn't know that yet you know like Mm. i to me i i really i enjoy that connection so i think it's all in all what they do with the borg in this book for the most part i think it's really smart and Mm. i don't know i'll ask you this is it better than what we got in first contact what they did with the borg does it feel more true to as we were talking about earlier the board we got in TNG to you? Hmm. It's almost two different questions <laughs> because yeah, I do feel like it does follow 
more naturally with what we saw of the Borg uh, up to this point. Um, I I really love first contact. That's a that's a tough question, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. If if I'm to kind of look sit here objectively, yeah, I think it does make more sense. I think it uh, it does it's more representative of the Borg as they were described in the next generation and that kind of thing. And the Borg queen really does kind of come out of left field again, like you, I can, I can headcanon it away. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I can, I can justify it, but yeah, if I'm being fair, this does make more sense. Um, but man, do I ever love first contact? <laughs> oh, oh. And, and I think, you know, uh... <laughs> Chris and I have been talking about the next generation movies with Worf, but part of the mm, reason was yeah. is it would just it was fun to talk through the next generation films, and that also meant we got to talk about First Contact, which is my favorite next generation movie and one of the best Star Trek movies I believe of all time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not as though I have any ill will towards First Contact whatsoever, but when I read this and I and I put my more objective hat on, yeah, I have exactly. to say this is probably more in line with and a, a better extrapolation to what they wanted in first contact than what they actually did in first contact. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that I agree completely with that. And yeah, it's really hard to argue that this doesn't make more sense because yeah, it really does follow on uh, much more naturally, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and honestly, in First Contact, you could have not created the Queen, but you ho- could have had them create a character, basically, so Lucutus was taken away from them, and so they created another version of that to which Picard was going up against. So it's still kind of the same character, mm-hmm. but not with the Queen Hive mentality thing. It's really yeah. just that they found another being to turn into that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I I think that, that anyway, that could have worked. That's a whole other, maybe <laughs> we can talk about that <laughs> another way. But yeah, I, I think it's really fascinating. And going kind of back to the idea of Kirk, we brought him back uh, and we end up with an empty grave. Uh, we're recording this right before Easter. No, we're not talking about that empty grave. Um, <laughs> no, no disrespect to Jesus here at all. But it is very interesting the last story, Ashes of Eden, it ended with this beam out effect of the the body and the you know the the stones kind of falling in, and so we we end up with Kirk returning and kind of getting that story that we didn't get in Generations, mm-hmm. and you know rather than dying on that mountain that nobody cares about, I mean, <laughs> Kirk assists here in in destroying the board, you know, um. Does that work better for you as well? That part, you know, actually really getting more time to work with Picard and 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 even the rest of the the twenty fourth century crews and and how does that work for you? This idea of really we've got an empty grave, we brought Kirk back. Do they make the most of it in this book? You think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is this is one thing that you know, kind of with when we were talking about the Ashes of Eden, we said that it should have been Star Trek Seven. And then I think this should have been, you know, this could have been the story that takes place after Generations. Uh, I, I I love what they do here because, you know, when Generations came out, you know, people for years had been saying, who's the better 
Captain Kirk or Picard, right? So one of the things that I think people would have loved to have seen is the two captains going up against one one another, right? You know, kind of a fight between Kirk and Picard. Kind of I mean, like uh, Riker against Picard in Takedown. Yeah, exactly, right. And, uh, you know, that's something we actually get in this story. You know, we get them kind of facing off a bit. Um, and then we also get the other thing that I think everyone wanted to see in Generations. I know I thought I was going to see this in Generations, and that's Kirk and Picard on the bridge of the Enterprise uh, taking on a threat, right? So, you know, um, the two heroes coming together and working together, not, you know, punching some guy on a planet that we don't care about that, you know, really Picard could have gotten anybody out of the Nexus right. to, to do, you know, like if you actually watch Generations, he says to Guinan, can you leave the Nexus? I need some help. And she's like, well, I can't leave. But here's someone who can. So Kirk was Guinan's replacement in Generations. Yeah. <laughs> he thought Guinan could help him take around <laughs> out Soren. So yeah, Kirk will do. Yeah, like so, and that's the role that that Kirk gets in Generations. You know, it's not exactly the battle royale that people wanted when they were watching Generations. So I feel like this story, in a lot of ways, is kind of that wish fulfillment of. Uh, and I mean, I guess I shouldn't speak for other all other fans, but, you know, when I thought of, you know, Kirk and Picard coming together on the big screen for the first time, this is more of what I wanted. You know, this kind of, uh, you know, actually using the character of Kirk in a grand way, in a fun way, and, uh, you know, where we really get the two crews or the or the two generations through Kirk and Picard's crew. Uh, coming together here and uh, I love those aspects of this story that's where I really uh, it really enjoy this story is when those aspects come to come out to play I I'm with you too I, I really like the idea that Kirk and Picard get the opportunity to really work together and you actually see the strengths and the weaknesses of both you know this isn't about measuring parts you know this is about mm -hmm them needing to work together because they need the experience of both people. And, you know, uh, what I actually really love, and again, I have to compliment uh, William Shatner to be able to talk about this with Kirk and really bring it home, this idea that uh, Kirk, you know, they're, they're on the bridge of this new enterprise, <laughs> <laughs> this uh, defiant class Quote enterprise. We'll talk enterprise. about that. We'll talk about that later. Uh, they're, <laughs> so they're on the the bridge of the enterprise. They're going towards this this um, this Borg homeworld, and they're having this philosophical discussion about something. Data and Picard and, and Kirk in his brain is thinking, "This is boring. Uh, <laughs> uh, we never had these conversations um, on my enterprise. It was more action." And he comes to realize through what happens in that conversation that maybe there is a place for more philosophical discussions. Maybe there is a place for that on the bridge. Maybe that's needed. And like showing a deficit in his character. And I thought that was really great. Again, like mm. we talked about with the Ashes of Eden, he's willing to say this character's not perfect. And maybe Picard actually has something to teach. You know, and... and that was what was great about the end of the book because there's the mind meld that happens between Kirk and Spock and uh, Picard. 
it's meant to help Kirk become more steady because of all that's happened to him with uh, the mind-altering um, torture he's been through at, when he's come back. And Picard says, look, you've given me some of your strength, and I have some of Spock's strength as well. We each have a part of each other, and like they've, he, they've all become better people because of the other. And I, just, I think that is really strong, and mm. I really like that. Because it's not about Kirk being the ultimate action hero. It's about him realizing there's things he still has to learn, you know? Just because he's a legend doesn't mean he doesn't need to still learn things. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, yeah, the parts of this book that I I really like as well as what I've already mentioned are, are when it gets introspective like that and kind of examining you know, what makes these characters great and always, and also what makes them, you know, fallible as well. I I really, really enjoy the parts like that. Um, One thing I also want to like compare it to is like, you know, at the end of the book, it seems that uh, Kirk has been lost, you know, and, and I mean, Spock senses that that is not the case, but you know, when, when everything kind of goes up at the end, um, you know, Picard says, perhaps this is a more fitting memorial than a simple cairn of stones. And I, you know, I I feel like that's a bit of a a judgment on generations, you know. Here we had this massively important character in Star Trek. You know, he, William Shatner, you know, like him or not, was Star Trek. You know, that was Captain Kirk and Spock (laughs) and McCoy. That was Star Trek uh, back in the day. And and, you know, to have him die when a bridge collapses on some planet somewhere is just, you know, I, I, I try not to get quite as worked up as some fans do about, you know, how the character was wrong there. But yeah, you know, that was not a good end for Kirk. And, you know, what he gets in this book, if this were the end of Kirk, you know, I would be I would have been much more uh, satisfied with that than than Generations for sure. I think you make a great point. And and look, uh, let's be honest. Generations is kind of very realistic. You know, most people don't get to die the hero. Mm. You know, but most people aren't Captain Kirk. Yeah, either. exactly. <laughs> but that's not the point. Like you said, most people aren't Captain Kirk. Kirk needs to go out in a blaze of glory. He literally mm. goes out in this story. At least we're not sure, but in a blaze of glory. Uh, mm-hmm. You know. Um, and that makes for such a more interesting story and a much more fitting in. And so if he never actually returned beyond this return here, if, if like he died again, I think it makes for a much better storyline and, and it's much more satisfying and it was much more fun. Yeah. Um, you know, like uh, I, I think of Kirk dying and it was fun. You know, like it was fun. This was a fun story, you know, so this time. Yeah. But that first time around, was it? Was it really? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I, I, I really do think that you have a good point um, that this is a much better end to Kirk if if he didn't continue. And it does. You know, we, we have Avenger and, and lots of other books to, to look forward to this year. But uh, as far as we know, He's gone, but not quite dead. Um, so 
You'll be dead in a minute. It's <laughs> not quite dead. <laughs> I feel happy. I feel happy. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I think we could put it all under the same thing, but the Kirk worship in the book um, it happens. And, and let's just say uh, the, the uber fan wank that does happen <laughs> in the story. Uh, so let's talk about that um, because there is a bit of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say there's as much as p- people probably think there is, but mm-hmm. there is some, and I, I really did catch it more in this storyline. So, uh, let's start with the thing that I think it kind of bothers a lot of people. Uh, Kirk kicks Worf's ass and, yeah. <laughs> and Riker's ass in this story. Um, mm-hmm. I have my reasons why I think that's okay, but I wanted to ask you first. Well, it's one of those things that, you know, when I, when I, think back on this story you know if it was if it was just kirk kicking Worf's ass yeah okay i could see it but <laughs> with with respect to Worf, it's that he defeats him in a you know with a batleth you know fighting and i'm just like okay you know that's that's just that's just being mean to Worf's character now i mean come on <laughs> the guy could beat kirk with a batleth i think but, you know, okay, even putting that aside, it's not even the fact that Kirk beats Worf and Riker. It's, you know, during the fights, how he's um seems so overpowered and so uh like Riker talks about Kirk's phantom like supernatural ability to get the drop on him in certain instances, and you know, Worf talks about how much of an amazing expert he must be with the Batleth. Uh, and I just, like, I feel like Kirk could have won those fights uh, with a little bit less of the uh, kind of hero worship that he gets in those parts, if that makes sense. My, I guess my problem isn't really with him coming out on top all the time. It's that how amazing he is while he comes out on top, if that makes sense. You know, I, I, I think to me that if Kirk hadn't been brought back the way he did, it would totally not work. Um, but the idea that Kirk is brought back because of Borg nanites that are running through his body, which we already know makes Borg stronger, um, mm. I feel like almost that, yes, Kirk is... They're, they're slowly killing him, but at the same time they've made him as good as ever like kirk is probably faster and stronger than he's ever been in his life even when he was younger that's my guess just because Mm -hmm. of the technology used to bring him back so the idea that he can beat Worf or anybody else makes sense to me Mm -hmm. um Yes, it does go a little bit far in the storyline, though, when they're talking about, oh, how great he is. It, you know, they don't know who he is yet um, at that point. They didn't know. Worf didn't know who he was getting beat by. And, you know, when they figure it out, you know, it it is a little bit much. But um, I, what I like about it is that Kirk isn't even in his right mind at that point either. So it's not as though, like, it's not really Kirk, you know. It's a facsimile of him who's been brainwashed, who has Borg nanites running through his body. So he's capable of a lot of things and doing a lot of things that Kirk wouldn't normally do. So when I think of it kind of almost as like zombie Kirk, 
<laughs> at this point because that's kind of what he is he really is this kind of like zombie kirk he doesn't know who he is he doesn't know what's going on really he's just being brainwashed and programmed to do these things and it it, it kind of works in that sense for me and and that's kind of where the story is he's just kind of the monster in the corner that gets mm. let loose uh on these different people and so it, it's kind of interesting um and and that's why i like again too it's like it kind of feels like a Star Trek episode at that point as well. You know, like it really does feel like something they would think of in a Star Trek episode. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that makes sense. And to be fair, uh, and like you said, it kind of feels like a Star Trek episode. It's not just this book that, that kind of does the, the over the top Kirk worship, you know, the, the entire franchise is kind of guilty of that at, at, uh, one point or another. So it does kind of fit in with, uh, you know, the ideas that, that the 24th century people have of Kirk and who he was and that sort of thing. So, you know, it, it fits with what we've seen before. It just, there's a couple points where I think it just goes a little bit over the top, kind of makes me take my head out of the book, roll my eyes and go, oh, come on, and then get back to the, the story that right. I actually really do enjoy. Right. <laughs> so. Well, and, and think about that too, like... um. I am thinking specifically of the Voyager storyline and um, I'm thinking of uh, the Admiral telling Janeway, are you going to, are you going to quote Kirk at me again? <laughs> you know, like, so it's, it, it really is something that has been done a lot in Star Trek and especially the 24th century. They were, you know, Riker's talked about Kirk and and that was really interesting too the the whole thing about Riker with Kirk was really interesting because you get the feeling like for Riker this is his hero yeah and it's like one of those things where your hero has become the villain and you can't believe it you know you don't want to believe it and just I thought him in the storyline he was really funny um mm. when he is you know Kirk and Picard are having their love fest on the bridge, you know, <laughs> and uh, he's like, um, guys, can we get over it and get done? Uh, we got things to do, so let's do those. Uh, I, I thought that stuff was great. Yeah, there are a lot of really, really good character moments in this book. Um, yeah, it's interesting you bring up Riker because I thought he was really well written in this for sure. Um and and actually, all of the characters, with the exception of maybe Data, sometimes I thought got a little bit, uh, but uh, you know, um, Spock and Bones especially, I thought were just written so perfectly in this book. Uh, you know, and I know we've we've said this about other books in the past, but this was one that whenever Spock was saying something on the page, I could totally hear Leonard Nimoy delivering those lines. Uh, there was just something about how those characters were written that were just was just pitch perfect in this book. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Bones, uh, I felt like everybody felt spot. And even, uh, this is what's great, you know, I think it's a lot of fun that this story does this thing of merging generations. Mm -hmm. And not only do we have uh, 23rd century characters, uh, Bones and Spock and Kirk back, uh, we've got a lot of the next generation cast, but we also have Dr. Bashir, 
mm-hmm. which I loved having him there. Um, and I think yeah. this is this is obviously before we learn that he's genetically engineered. So that would have been more fun, I think, if if it, this had been the genetically engineered Bashir. We know that, but the way in which he interacted it, uh, with um, all of the characters, I thought was great. Sounded very much like Bashir. In fact, I, I love that Riker even notes, you know, he was kind of a d-bag back in the day when we first met but i like this guy this this guy has really changed and the the fact that he notices that i thought was really fascinating and so um yeah i i think that all of these characters felt like they're written really well and i um you know the way they take data here in this book it it's very reminiscent of what we were getting in generations they were just kind of toning that down a little bit but it still felt very reminiscent of that and um Mm. which is probably my least favorite version of data we ever get so that's probably what's really rubbing me the wrong way there (laughs) no i i'm with you i'm not a huge data fan in general as you know and uh it was really jeff lang's books that really made me kind of like data um but yes i agree with you the the, that's a really annoying data um so (laughs) But yeah, I, I really thought that it was fun watching all of these characters get to interact. And, you know, what's great about what they had done with The Next Generation is, you know, Scotty was still alive. We knew McCoy was still alive. Spock was still alive. So all of these characters were still there. And, you know, when Kirk comes back, he's not completely alone in that sense. And I really enjoy that. I think it actually works I, for the most part, like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've, this is the third time now that I've read this book and I've almost had a different opinion every time now. Um, I, I really loved it when I first read it. And then when I read it again, just a few years ago, I was pretty harsh on it. I, you know, kind of really picked it apart. And then this time around, I, I've really come back to, really enjoying most of this book. So it, it's kind of interesting how that's really roller coastered for me. I wasn't expecting that at all. It is. It's really fascinating. And um, so all that together, Dan, I think, you know, I'm sure there's more things we could talk about, but I think it's a good time to talk about our ratings with what you said about having the, the different opinions. You know, reading this for the third time now, where do you wind up with uh, the return? What would you rate William Shatner's second foray into Star Trek lit? Well, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I think I really enjoyed it again this time around. You know, really come back to being able to look past a lot of the things that bugged me the last time I read it uh, and and really enjoy the story for what it was. Um, I... I think I I have to come back to the characters. That's what really makes this story for me, you know, getting a little bit um, into the story and a little bit into the minds of the characters when Kirk wakes up as himself for the first time and Bones is there and Spock is there. You know, it's a really great moment. And, and this book has a lot of those really, really great moments here. And that's to me what makes this really enjoyable. And the fact that it really writes a lot of the wrongs that I felt were in generations. Um, for me, 
you know, there's there's always little nits and little things that you can pull apart. But uh, this this time around, I'd have to give this one for sheer enjoyability factor a solid four out of five incorrectly colored Starfleet phaser beams, <laughs> because that is one thing that bugged me in this book a lot is they kept calling phaser beams blue. And they are not blue in the next generation. <laughs> that is very I true. know it's a minor thing, but darn it, I'm a Trekkie and I I obsess over little details. So that's no, my that's, final rating. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so funny. I didn't even pick up that, that up. I was so into this, the story itself. Um, <laughs> you know, this is the second time I've read this story. And, uh, you know, I noticed some of the flaws in it more than I did before. But what I did notice honestly the most is how much freaking fun this story just mm -hmm. is like it really is a fantastically fun story um and I, I think that that's one thing that they were able to capture they were able to capture the sense of enjoyment that you got from the original series storylines um and do something really interesting with the characters but at the same time uh, create something really memorable, and this is very memorable. Obviously, bringing back Captain Kirk, and they did it in a way that fit enough within the universe of Star Trek that it wasn't beyond believable. I mean, for the love of Pete, we brought back Spock. You know, like it's we can bring back anyone at this point. And um, we can find a way to make it work. And so I really thought that they did a good job of making this work. And I had no issues with it. And for the most part, just had an amazing time reading the story. It was it was so enjoyable from start to finish. And so, yeah, I'm with you. This is four out of five Black Defiant class vessels we named Enterprise. <laughs> That's a so, great rating. Um, yeah, that was a little bit much. But... Um, Still one of those things like, okay, fine. I mean, we named the Defiant, or we named the San Paulo to the Defiant again. Uh, so you know what? We can do anything we want. It it was great. <laughs> and actually, ever since first reading this book, I have to say, I've always wanted to build a model of the Defiant uh, in this black color. <laughs> that would be kind of really cool. cool. Give it that kind of matte color and, and maybe um, some definition with some... Uh, Oh, gray highlights or something like real dark gray highlights or something you know just to give it some definition but yeah that would be yeah. kind of fun and then put the uss enterprise sticker on there yeah that'd yep. be cool <laughs> be awesome well matthew uh man this was a really fun discussion of the return and and really you know a really fun book uh i think a lot of star trek fans myself included kind of lose sight of that that above all else you should have fun reading these things and uh man this was a really enjoyable experience what's great is what you said look it is fun but they don't lose sight of the characters themselves mm -hmm. and for the most part the characters do feel true and um especially the interaction between kirk and picard i really think that's fun especially when you take into consideration the way in which movie picard does change and he is a little bit more like Kirk. And I love that we're seeing that happen here in this story, how they're both learning from each other. And now they each have uh, a part of each other, 
you know, because of the mind meld, they'll always be with each other. And so, yeah, this is a, it's really just, oh gosh, it's, it's a great time reading a book, you know, and, uh, I would have to say I probably read this book in two major sittings with a, a few other minor sittings. Mm. And that was just because I was having fun turning the pages because I wanted to keep going. And yeah. Yeah, I think that's what's best about a book, you know, and I'm so glad we get to keep turning pages here on Literary Treks because of our wonderful associate producers through Patreon. We have Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatala, and Bruce Gibson. All of these guys make sure that Literary Treks comes to you each week, as well as everything here on Trek FM. Now, the reason that happens is because we are a listener-supported network. And so these guys went to patreon.com slash trekfm, and they signed up to support us each and every month, making sure that all the content throughout the entire network comes to everyone each week. We have some wonderful perks for you if you join. Uh, we've got exclusive content, early content. We've got seats in the content development team. We've got the Patreon roundtable, so much more. We'd love to have you be part of our team. So go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and see how you can help us bring trek.fm to you each and every week. Dan, like you said, I had the best time, honestly, just talking about this. I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else tonight. Uh, before we go, let everybody know where they can find you online. Uh, well, Matthew, you can find me uh, on my website, uh, treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, uh, both old and new. I actually did review The Return uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and I think you'll find my review is a little bit more scathing then than it was now. I enjoyed it a lot more this time around. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm on Instagram. My username there is Kertrats47. And I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash treklitreviews. And you can also find me on the Babel Conference talking about all things Star Trek pretty much all the time. Uh, Matthew, uh, when you're not hunting wild animals in the nature preserve outside of the capital city of Kronos, where can we find you? Dang it. You found me. Uh, well, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I am also doing The Orb with Chris Jones, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. You can find me doing The 602 Club, which is our general geek show here in the network. And the reason we have that... It, we all love so many different fandoms. We needed a place where we could kick back and talk about those. Um, been having a blast recently talking about so much fun stuff. We've been talking about a lot of comic stuff with Marvel and DC. Obviously, Batman v Superman coming out soon. Uh, in fact, this week as we record this, Dan. Uh, we've also been talking about some of the TV shows that have been happening recently in that genre. So, and some Star Wars stuff. I mean, just all kinds of fun. So join us over at the 602 Club. You won't regret it. Ruby serves up the best drinks. Uh, you'll also find me on a podcast with my friend John Mills called Aggressive Negotiations. That is a Star Wars-only podcast, and we just pick a topic each week and talk about that together, and it's a lot of fun. Um, you'll find us over on thenerdparty.com, or you can find Aggressive Negotiations as well on iTunes. Well, thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one